Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Donna, so much. If you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to James chapter 2. It's page 1214 in the Red Pew Bibles, just as we continue our, our Keeping It Real series. And as we uh, look that up, let me ask you a question. Uh, what is authentic religion? What is authentic religion or what is true religion? This morning we, we were thinking about rule engine. If you were here where Christianity and following Jesus is sometimes reduced to a list of rules and regulations. But what is the real deal? What is the kind of religion that pleases the Father? What does that look like? Well, we're not left to guess what that looks like. We don't have to work it out for ourselves. If you were here two weeks ago at the baptismal service, whenever I talked about God's word that needed to be heard, that needed to be accepted and needed to, obeyed, to be obeyed based on the end of James chapter one where, where he compares God's word to a mirror. Some of you might have noticed if you were at that service that I didn't read the last two verses of James chapter one. And in that last verse of James one, which is connected to what we're gonna look at tonight, there is a definition of authentic religion. There is a definition of true religion, acceptable religion, and here it is. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. So we're not left to guess. This is what authentic religion looks like. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, that seems to have two parts to it. One that's got to do with how we relate to, how we react to, how we respond to people who are in need, and then the other part that has got to do with pollution levels. And in one sense, where we, we go from here and where James goes in chapter two seems to pick up on the first part, and yet we actually do get polluted by the world whenever we don't react to and relate to and respond to people who are in need. So let's stand together for the public reading of, of God's word. James 2, we're gonna read the first 13 verses. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, 
you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Have a seat. James, and we've said this, James is a very practical book. His material is direct. He doesn't miss and hit the wall. It's relatively easy to understand, James, but it's not so easy to face up to it. It's uncomfortable at times because it's quite personal. It challenges us about who we are and who we claim to be. Plus, it sets out how we're meant to live as Christian disciples. As followers of Jesus, it, it kind of sets that out in very real and very raw terms. And that's good because it's good to be stretched and it's good to be questioned. It's good to be disrupted. It's good to be disturbed. It's good to be made to feel a little uneasy at times. It's good when God's word provokes us, when God's word probes. But sometimes the way God's word is handled and used in a context like this, and particularly with verses like this, Sometimes the way it's used only leaves people feeling got at, beaten up, walking out not even sure they are Christians, judged. And I don't want to do that tonight. In some ways it's easy to do that with a text like this, but I don't want to do that. I do want God's word to get under our skin and to cause us to reflect and the change if necessary, but I don't want anyone here to feel targeted or judged in any way. And as we journey through these unsettling verses, please remember the last four verses that we read together, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, because of Jesus, because of our faith in Jesus, you and I will be judged on the basis of mercy. And that's an incredible thought. So let's explore some true religion. James begins this section with his main point. And to all intents and purposes, it's, it's a reasonably blunt command. It's not altogether surprising, but here it is. My brothers and sisters, here it is. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. That, that's pretty clear. Some translations have it must not show partiality. See, having favorites is rarely a good thing. It happens, and we get it. But it's not helpful when we, have, we do. And when it comes to community life and life within a local church community, it's just not on, at least a certain expression of it is not on if you want to practice true religion and if you are a genuine believer in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 
The word translated favoritism or partiality literally means, as I understand it, to accept the face of someone or to receive the face of someone. And what it's referring to is simply taking people at face value. It's where you look at someone and you make a judgment call based on their appearance, based on how they look, their externals. Now, let's be really honest with ourselves and with God. That's really easy to do, isn't it? It's really easy to do. We look at the way someone's dressed. We look at the color of their skin. We look at the state of their hair. We look at the way they look. We look at their disability. We look at their sexual orientation. We look at their body art. We look at their piercings. We look at their Savile Row shirt. We look at the car they drive. And we could go on and we could go on. And when we look at those things, we form an immediate impression. We make a quick decision. Like, don't like. Talk to, ignore. Approach, avoid. Welcome, keep at a distance. It's what we do. It's what I do. But if we're the real deal, we shouldn't. Or we should fight against it. And James says that up front. Don't show favoritism, period. Don't let outward appearance dictate your attitude towards anyone. I came across this phrase during the week, Christians of all people should be impartial, soul deep, not skin deep in our judgments. Now, James then does what any decent preacher does. He illustrates the point. I use very few illustrations, which says everything. James is a master illustrator. And in verses two and three, he pictures a scene And he describes a scenario that has probably been played out in any number of churches for centuries. A guy comes into church and he's well-dressed, complete with a bit of expensive bling. And at the same time, a poor and shabby guy with shabby clothes wanders in and you make a fuss of one of them and you show one of them to a decent seat, whereas you virtually blank the other, and then you ask him, could you please stand at the back, or, or at least will you sit somewhere on the floor? And at one level, you read that, and you think, it's a bit extreme, isn't it? Because, come on, we're not actually going to ask, we're not, none of us are going to ask someone to, to stand at the back or sit at our feet, just because we don't like the look of them. But the question I've been asking myself this week is, Am I going to welcome both of them in the same way? Am I going to talk to both of them exactly the same? Am I going to sit with either of them during coffee? Am I going to invite either of them back for lunch? Or am I far more inclined to gravitate towards one and steer clear of the other? And as they walk in, Do we wonder sometimes if one has come for a worship service, whereas the other has probably come for a handout? What's our attitude? It's uncomfortable. 
But if that in itself is slightly challenging, what James says next is a bombshell. Because if we do this, says James, if you show favoritism, here's what James asks, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Or in another version, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's strong, that's uncompromising language because what James is saying is favoritism isn't just out of order. Favoritism isn't just poor, it's not just unfortunate, it's evil. And when we accept some people and when we reject others, when we make distinctions, when we deem some people worthy and others not so much, that's what it is. And James shoots from the hip. And this is not, as I say, just about rich and poor. It's about social distinctions. This goes beyond, this applies to race, this applies to nationality, this applies to disability. This applies to politics. This applies to sexual orientation. Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. And James doesn't leave it at that. He then goes on to explain why favoritism can have no place in the Christian life and practice or in a Christian community or in the kingdom of God. And to start with, he, he gives us a number of reasons why this is wrong, why this is out of order, why this is evil. To start with, it goes right against the grain of how God works. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? And at one level, James's point is pretty simple. He says this, you see those people you reject? God accepts them. God accepts them. In fact, God not only accepts them, God has chosen them. Now, that's not to say that God loves the rich less than he loves the poor, because if you go there, you're in danger of accusing God of favoritism. And all over Scripture, we discover time and time again, God has no favorites. In fact, you could also argue that if you happen to go there in your thinking, given how James describes favoritism in verse 4, you could also be guilty of saying that God is evil, and that's a serious thing. God so loved the world. But what James is saying here is that God is choosing to bless the very people that his readers then and his readers now tend to shun, tend to avoid, tend to discriminate against and judge externally. And they and we cannot do that if we are genuine believers in Jesus and we long to pursue authentic, true religion that is acceptable to our Father. And what's interesting about this initial context and situation is that the overwhelming majority of Christians at that time were from poorer backgrounds. Churches in the first century weren't exactly rammed full of rich and well-off people, which is probably quite different for most Western churches today, where we all know, and we've got to accept this, the majority of people sitting in our pews are not poor. 
What's also interesting is that in global terms, the church today globally is overwhelmingly poor. Many of the places where the gospel is advancing the fastest in Africa, in Asia, in South America are predominantly poor. God's propensity to choose and to call people to himself from among the poor and among the lowly is a striking feature of how God has worked and does work. And when we, or if we discriminate in any way or show favoritism at any level, we fly in the face of that. We go right against the grain of how God operates. And for those of us who, as Scripture says, are to be imitators of God, For those of us who claim to live in God, we have to walk as Christ walked. We have got to wrestle with this, remembering that the one we follow, for all our sakes, became poor and embraced poverty. James wants his readers to grasp the fact that those who are poor in the eyes of the world are also the very ones that inherit the kingdom. And therefore, in real terms, in eternal terms, they're the ones who are phenomenally rich. You see, we've got to be very careful, and this takes us back to the last verse of chapter 1. We've got to be very careful that we, that I, I have got to be so careful that I do not get polluted by the world when it comes to how I see and treat people, especially based on their appearance, first impressions, or the fact that they are different. Because you see, that is the way the world operates. And so James says, look, don't allow yourselves to be polluted by the world. Don't see people through the world's eyes. See them through different eyes, through God's eyes. And James goes on. And he gives another reason why favoritism's a no-go. And herein lies a bit of an irony because it turns out that it is, in the, it is in fact the rich who are giving Christians a hard time. Look at verse six in the first half of verse seven. Is it not the rich, asks James, who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? The rich exploiting the poor. See, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. The rich in James's day were causing trouble for the church. They were taking them to court and they were bad-mouthing Jesus. So James asks, Why, in light of all that, are you showing them favoritism? Why treat rich people especially well whenever all they do is mistreat you? Now, James wasn't trying to drum up resentment towards the rich. That would have been hypocritical, to say the least. But he was pointing out the irony of Christians pinning their hopes on the rich. And just as a side note, we all know how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God because according to Jesus, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle. But that doesn't mean we should show favoritism towards the rich. And 
Let's move on then. So there's the first two reasons. According to James, there's another reason why uh, favoritism contradicts faith because it flies in the face of royal law. Did you notice that? And here's what James says is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then look at verse 8. James simply says, see, if you do this, you do right. Now, the reason James calls this royal law is pretty simple. Does anyone know? Just check you're still out there and with me. Does anyone know why James might have called this royal law? Thanks, Andrew. Because Jesus said it's the most important thing. Jesus himself, the king himself, put this command front and central. It's a quote from Leviticus 19, the Old Testament verse that Jesus quoted the most, and along with Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, all about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, in mind, Jesus offered this as an executive summary of the whole of God's law when he was asked by someone what was the most important of all the commandments. Here, if you like, is biblical ethics in a nutshell. Here is God's law in bullet point. Plus, as we all know, this became the basis of one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's the point? Simple. Their attitude of only accepting and only loving some of their neighbors, i.e. the rich and powerful. In other words, their tendency to be selective. Do you know what that does according to James? It breaks, it smashes, it walks all over royal law. And again, if you're serious about living this life, if you're serious about following Jesus, if you're serious about practicing true, acceptable, God-honoring, God-glorifying religion, then you cannot be selective. You cannot show favoritism. You cannot not love the poor. And building on this point, James then introduces mercy, which going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan is not surprising because after Jesus told that infamous parable about what it means to love your neighbor, he asked the question of the expert in the law. He said, now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who got mugged? And the answer is the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus then finished that conversation by saying, will you go and do likewise to love your neighbor, whoever they are, rich, poor, Jew, Samaritan. Do you know what it means? Show mercy towards him. Show mercy towards him. And here's what James says in the very last verse we read together, because judge, and this, this, is, this is chilling, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Where was the mercy shown to the poor in this church? Where was the mercy shown to the poor in this scenario? Answer, nowhere. They had mistreated the poor. They'd sent them to the back of their churches. They had offered them a seat on the floor. No mercy is offered. And according to James, and this is direct, this is straightforward, this doesn't pull any punches. If you fail to show mercy, you'll be judged without mercy. 
And let's be honest, when the time of judgment comes, if any of us, if any of us were judged without mercy, where would we be? Where would we be? Thank God for Jesus. Because as a result of Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. But in the here and now, because you see, when God looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. So mercy triumphs over Jesus. Mercy triumphs over judgment, sorry. Oh, yeah, Freudian slip. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But in the here and now, let's allow that truth, that reality, to kind of profoundly impact how we treat others. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not merciful. And if we take this back to Jesus, what did he say about life in the kingdom of God? What did Jesus explicitly teach about those who are the real deal? What did Jesus say about those who live the truly God-blessed life? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We, if we're genuine believers, are to go and do likewise. Go and show mercy to all, irrespective of their appearance, irrespective of their background, irrespective of their dress sense, irrespective of their income level, irrespective of their skin color, irrespective of their political leanings, irrespective of their disability, and so on. And so as we go from here, and as we welcome people in here, and as we welcome people to Fane Street Primary School on Sunday mornings, may we not show favoritism because it goes against the grain of how God works. It overlooks the behavior of those we favor. It contradicts royal law and it makes a mockery out of mercy.